The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether yourself or the Lord. Give him your heart, his call you've heard. Give it all to the Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The children of Israel were in desperate slavery, and they had no possible way to extricate themselves from that slavery. Had they tried, they would have been destroyed. The Egyptians would have swept in and put down the revolt, killing men and women and children. There was no possibility for them to rescue themselves out of Egypt. But God heard some intercessors who were crying out to him. And the scriptures say God heard these intercessors. And because he heard these intercessors, he was concerned for them. And out of his concern, he reached out into the desert and he grabbed a shepherd by the name of Moses. And he said, you go rescue my people. And the way you will know this is me who is speaking to you is when you arrive at this mountain with all these people in worship, you'll know you were sent by me. Well, that was absolutely no comfort to Moses. <laughs> like, don't let me know after I've been exposed to Pharaoh's wrath. Let me know before I go. Oh, does that sound like anybody? But God was looking at the whole picture. So Moses rescued the people of God with the Lord's staff. He destroyed Egypt with the Lord's staff. And they came out with boldness, marching out into that desert where no one could survive. Now, I hope you heard me. When God rescues you, he doesn't take you to an oasis. He takes you out of the land of fish and leeks and cucumbers, and he takes you out into a dry desert where there's no possibility for you to survive except by depending on him alone. Now, some of you, like the children of Israel, are going to get out into that desert and you're going to say, what am I doing out here? At least in Egypt, I had leeks and I had fish. I had all the food I wanted. And so God walked him across the Red Sea and then closed it behind him. 
Now there was no possible way for them to get out of this and live. God is in the process of boxing you in. He's done a very good job already with some of you. (laughs) You're not going to get out of this deal alive if you don't go in the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's become clear to you because the Red Sea has closed behind you. And so God in his mighty power, in his grace, in his mercy, carried these people as a father would carry a child and carried him all the way. You know, that's such a wonderful sentimental picture. But I've had kids. And it's no fun carrying a kid with a dirty diaper yelling at the top of his lungs as you're trying to make it out of the grocery store. (laughs) And God picked this people up, and in spite of their dirty diaper and in spite of their yelling and screaming, he carried them. Any dirty diapers today? He carried them. He rescued them. He took them to the mountain of God. That's where he always wants to take us. Because that's where he deals with us. The mountain of God. At the mountain of God, he had Moses come up on the mountain. And he said, I'm going to speak to these people. There was lightning and there was thunder. And God spoke from the mountain to them. And they said, oh, don't talk to us anymore, God. We're too afraid of you. Talk through Moses. So God spoke through Moses. Of course, they rebelled. They had their calf gods. But then the wonderful thing that happened, God began to speak into Moses the exact details of the body life of his people. You're to offer the sacrifice of a lamb at this time every day. You're to offer this sacrifice to atone for your sins. You're to do this, and on and on the regulations went until they had a whole body of law that completely controlled their civil life and their religious life. Now we pick up the story in Leviticus, the ninth chapter. The sanctuary or the tent of meeting with that awesome mercy seat where God would appear personally in their camp. That mercy seat was between God and the law. And now that's been constructed. The tabernacle's been completely finished. And now the presence of God, the glory of God comes into the sanctuary with such power that Moses himself cannot enter into that glory. This is a glory unseen and unknown even to Moses. He would talk with God face to face, the scriptures say. But now God has unveiled his glory, and Moses can't even go into it. He would die if he went into it. You see this glorious presence of God from any point in the camp. Moses and Aaron offer The sacrifices, Aaron has been 
made a high priest. He's now dignified by the priestly clothing. And verse 22, then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. Now, please hear me. I don't care what the devil has been speaking into your heart about how bad you are. That's why there's a mercy seat. And God's intention is to bless you. It is not God's intention to harm you. It is to bless you. Not with money and cars and houses and stuff. It's to bless you by drawing you into his glory, by exposing to you his heart. Having sacrificed the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offerings, he stepped down. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. Again, for the second time, God has his servant bless the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Do you see this picture? Moses and Aaron have been in the presence of God. They come out. The altar is there. The, the pieces are laid on the altar. And suddenly the glory of God turns into fire. And that fire comes out of that glory, strikes that altar. And the fire consumes everything on that altar. And the people see it. And they fall down on their faces and worship. And joy fills their heart. Do you notice terror did not fill their hearts? Joy filled their hearts because they knew that God was blessing them and they knew they were clean before him. Now watch. Aaron's sons, chapter 1, verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense in other words, they added the prayers. They put everything in the censer. And they offered unauthorized fire before God or before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. One moment in one verse, we have fire came out from God and consumed the altar of burnt offering. The next moment, we have the same fire of God coming out and taking the life of two of God's servants. The same fire. The same glory of God. One moment consuming that which is on the altar of burnt offering, and the next consuming two men who were dressed in priest's clothing, who were bringing the prayers before God. 
Now, we need to be very careful because we're the National Prayer Chapel. We're to bring prayers before God. That's what these two men were doing. They were bringing prayers before God. But they were doing it with unauthorized fire. Now, what does that mean? Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And Aaron remained silent. That was good judgment. For a man who's always showed poor judgment, Aaron finally had good judgment. The bodies are carried out. And then Moses said to Aaron and to his two remaining sons, verse 6, do not let your hair become unkempt and do not tear your clothes or you will die and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. Verse 7, do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come you must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. Suddenly, we see the picture. These two men died because they had not seen the difference between the common and the uncommon, between the holy and the unholy. And in their unholiness, they brought their prayers before the Lord God of heaven. And when they brought their prayers out of their drunkenness before God, he took their lives. Judgment. Now, why would God do that? It's very clear. He wanted the children of Israel to know that he was holy and that he would not countenance anyone treating him in a way that was not holy. Now, let's define again our word, holy. To be holy means to be set apart, to be sanctified. Well, what is he sanctified from? What is he separated from? The whole rebellion of Satan, the whole way of darkness. God was going to have nothing of the devil's work interfering with his redemptive work. The devil had no place in the work of God. Now, just a side note, why was Moses not allowed to go into the promised land? Because he did the same thing these two men did. He did not respect God as holy. Now, I see this whole picture. I say, Lord... What's that have to do with me? That's Old Covenant. You don't do that today. Well, let's go to the New Covenant. I want to show you something. Jesus came and walked among men, and for three years, 
three and a half years. He taught men and women. He taught his apostles how to be his body. He taught them how to come and walk with him. He taught them the difference between the common and the uncommon. He taught them the difference between the holy and the unholy. Remember, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He taught them in every way possible, and then he left behind his disciples, his apostles. He ascended to heaven, and he said, now you stay here and wait for the Holy Spirit that I'm going to send you. So we find on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. They were all in total unity together. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Suddenly we have the same thing happening again in the new covenant. We have the fire of God falling on his sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to be living sacrifices on the altar of burnt offering. It was to those who were on that altar of burnt offering that he sent his fire, and if you please, to consume them, to consume them, that no love of the world would remain in their hearts, that they would be totally obedient to the Spirit. And as I've shared with you before, Pentecost was established by God to commemorate the coming and giving of the law at Sinai. And now, at Pentecost, once more, a new covenant is reaffirmed by fire. Now, the disciples, that body of Christ, was to walk not under the law, but under the authority of the Holy Ghost. And he came with power. Now you find in the Old Covenant that the central action place of the worship of God was the bronze altar of burnt offering. The people did not enter into the holy compartment or the most holy compartment. Only the priests entered there. But the men would have to bring the animal that they offered, lay their hands on the head, and then they would have to slaughter that animal right at the altar of burnt offering. And that offering was then placed on the altar, and it was consumed. It was the priest who took the blood of certain offerings in and placed the blood on the horns of the altar of incense or prayer. It was the priests who took the blood in and sprinkled it before the compartment that was holy unto God, most holy, where the Ark of the Covenant was. 
Now in the new covenant, what is the most important article of worship? It is once more the altar of burnt offering. Because that's where God calls us to come and lay our lives down. And some people say to me, Pastor, why do you always talk about repentance? Because you can't enter into the tabernacle of God without passing that bronze altar of burnt offering. And as you lay your life down on that altar as a living sacrifice before God, and as the fire of God comes down on your life, you then have permission to enter into the most holy compartment by the blood of Jesus Christ. The church today has tried to enter into the most holy compartment and bypass the altar of burnt offering. They've tried to enter into the most holy compartment without going to the laver where you have to be totally washed. And so in our filth and our arrogance, we come and offer strange fire before God. Not the fire of the Holy Spirit, but the fire of humanism. The fire of doing it ourselves. Now in the New Testament church, they were on that altar of burnt offering. They were living sacrifices before God. Not just in their words, but in their actions. They were living sacrifices for God. But now watch. There was a man named Ananias in chapter 5, together with his wife, Sapphira. And they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Sound like Nadab and Abihu? And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. And he fell down dead. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And the young men came, and they wrapped up his body, and they carried him out, and they buried him. About three hours later, his wife comes in. Peter asks her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. But notice the next verse. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. 
and all the believers who used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that as Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all of his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. Miracles were an everyday occurrence in this church because they were all on the altar of burnt offering. Part of what we have to recognize is why did Satan do what he did with Nadab and Abihu, and why did Satan do what he did with Ananias and Sapphira? Always we usually ask the question, why did God do it? But the question is not why did God do it, why did Satan do it? He had a strategy. His strategy was very simple. He could not stop the power from flowing in this new church unless he could break their unity. And if he could break their unity, the power of the Spirit would be grieved and they would be left desolate. Today, we've been left desolate. We have lots of information. We have lots of understandings. But when I walk downtown, nobody brings sick people out and lay them on the sidewalk so my shadow can hit them. Do they do that with you? Any of you walk through the hospital lately and behind you a streaming flow of people leaping from their beds shouting hallelujah, I'm healed? No, we're desolate. Why? Because we've not considered God holy. We have had no consideration for our sin. We don't understand the grievous nature of our sin how God resents and hates our sin. And so we can bring strange fire before God, and he had to make a choice. Am I going to kill these people, or am I going to withdraw and just slowly try to deal with their hearts? I praise God in his mercy, he just withdrew. That's mercy. Remember what I said at the beginning. It is not God's heart to do anything but bless his people. And so now he's withdrawn and he waits for a people who will get on the altar of burnt offering and be a living sacrifice before him. But we need to talk now about what this body life looks like so that we know in some way conceptually what the church is going to look like so we can begin to understand what the cost is going to be for laying on that altar a burnt offering. And I mean, we need to practically understand. What's this mean for you when you leave the house of the Lord today 
and you go about tomorrow's business. Well, let's go back and look together at what the New Testament church looked like. Because we'll look the same way when we're all on the altar of burnt offering. That will be the sign. Right now, many things divide us. One person over here says, my very painful circumstance consumes my time and my energy, and I have no time for the body. Another person over here says, well, I'm going this direction and that direction, and I have these responsibilities. You'll have to excuse me. I even watch it in this fellowship as we gather in our prayer circle. I see people hurrying in. Oh, i got to get in the prayer circle. They're already late. What kept them? Circumstances? Circumstances. They didn't mean to be late. God doesn't judge them. He wants to bless them. But we're not unified because our circumstances control us instead of our controlling the circumstances, which is a sign that we're not on the altar. Now, if you're like me, I'll climb on the altar in my prayer closet. And 30 minutes later, as I'm facing a crisis in my life, I'm saying, let's see now, what do I have to do to survive? What do I have to do to take charge of this situation? How am I going to handle this crisis? Well, the Lord is saying, wait a minute. A few minutes ago, you were on the altar of burnt offering. So do I trust God with my circumstances? Or am I going to have to somehow rev up my energy and say, okay, God's not here. I better get busy and take care of it. Today I'll be God. Have you played God this week? If you've played God this week, you are not on the altar of burnt offering. And that breaks the unity of the body of Jesus. When you get off that altar and you go about your own business, you just broke the unity of the body of Jesus. You see, you don't live to yourself. Your family does not live to itself. We are inextricably bound together in the spirit because we've been called to walk as one body with Jesus Christ as the head. So let's look at what a body looks like when it's filled with the spirit, the fire on that altar of burnt offering. 3,000 people have just heard the cutting message of, of preacher Peter, who's now been told by the Lord that he's going to make him into a fisher of men instead of a fisher of fish. Remember, Peter had to answer the question, which do you love more? Do you love me or do you love your fish? Now, you're going to have to answer the same question. You can't love your fish and be on the altar of burnt offering. Do you love your job more than you love Jesus? Do you love the misery of your circumstances more than you love Jesus? Do you love the ability to be right more than you love Jesus? Is there anything in your world that you love more than Jesus? I can tell you now. 
I don't understand this. I just know it's true. God always comes at me with questions. He never comes accusing because Satan is the accuser. God always comes in that still small voice and he says, do you know what you're doing now, Ray? He came to me this last week this way. I'd been spending hours in the prayer closet. I'd been agonizing before the Lord. I've been in travail of spirit for you all, for the radio broadcast, for the people who are not hearing a cutting word of God anymore. I left the prayer room and I began to do some other things. Not bad things, just normal things. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, you've been in prayer a lot today, Ray, but you haven't read the word that much. Only several hours. Wouldn't you rather be with me instead of doing these things? And immediately in my heart, I said, no. I'm tired of being in the prayer closet. I need a break. And he said, do you want to be separate from me? No. Well, right now you're separate from me. And I tell you, rebellion rose up in my heart. I said, God, you're not treating me fair. He didn't answer. He was gone. I was separate. To bed that night, tossed and turned, couldn't go to sleep. Got up, drank some water, and went back to bed. Fixed the covers. Couldn't go to sleep. Dozed off a little bit. Ah, finally. 1.30 in the morning, like an electric shock hitting me. I sat up in bed. I said, I'm separate from God. And I headed back to the prayer closet. And I stayed there for some time, weeping and repenting before God and asking that this arrogant rebellion would not rise up in my heart. Putting it down, getting back on that altar of burnt offering. Saying, God, I can't be separate from your heart. I miss you too much when I'm separate. See, it wasn't a matter of his punishing me. It wasn't a matter of his being angry at me. It wasn't a matter of his accusing me. It's just the more I was separate from that, I couldn't stand that separation between his heart and mine. And I went back into that prayer closet and I said, God, my heart is breaking. And I tell you, I came. His presence filled that room. Our hearts were together. And finally, he was the one who said, now go to bed. I went and laid down. And boom. I was out. What I want you to hear today is God is not the author of self-condemnation. Self-condemnation is merely an excuse of the devil for not repenting of our sins. Self-condemnation has no place in the walk of a Christian. 
It's a trap like a fowler's snare. Oh, how, how bad I am. Look, oh, how bad I am. Look, I, I failed in this. I failed my wife. I failed my kids. I failed my job. I failed everything I've tried to do. I failed at everything all my life. I'm no good. Look how bad I am. The devil's just setting you up. You see, when we punish ourselves, then we go to God with our self-punishment and we say, Look, God, how much I beat myself up. Now will you love me? And he says, no. I can only love you through the blood of Jesus Christ. So repent of your sin. And when you repent, the blood will cover it. Now this is hard for some of you because you've lived your whole life condemning yourself and beating yourself up. You see, this is very different than what I used to teach as a psychotherapist. I taught you should have to beat on a pillow and get your emotions out, and, and then you should do some things that would change your self-esteem. My self-esteem is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not found in beating a pillow. My self-esteem is, is found in being on the altar of burnt offering where I have living fellowship with a God whose heart is overflowing with love and mercy. So Satan would try to picture God as a condemning God, but he's a liar. But the avenue to the heart of God is repentance and the altar of burnt offering. So if we go try to pray other kinds of prayers and bypass the altar of burnt offering, if we try to get ourselves cleaned up and we try to somehow slip into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God, expect the same fate of Nadab and Abihu, and Ananias and Sapphira. Now let's look at the body life. Acts, the second chapter, verse 42. They devoted, that is, they steadfastly, they single-mindedly, with fidelity to a certain course of action, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, they devoted themselves single-mindedly. They devoted themselves not to the newspaper, not to the TV, not to the computer, not to the job, not to the family, not to the business. They devoted themselves single-mindedly, totally, to the teaching of the scriptures. The apostles' teaching were the scriptures. So they devoted. That's the first characteristic of a true church of the living God of heaven. Any church that does not devote itself first and foremost to the word is a flesh church. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Secondly, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the koinonia. In other words, they're all on the altar of burnt offering. And as they're all on that altar of burnt offering, they recognize that there's no one righteous among them. There's nobody better than anybody else. They're all in the boat together. So one man was a drug addict. He's not a drug addict now. He's on the altar of burnt offering. And the fire's burning. Another man was a thief. Another man was a gossip. Another man was filled with lust. Another man was worshiping money. He had money fever. Somebody asked me this week, what do you mean money fever? I said, haven't you ever had money fever? You suddenly see a new opportunity. And you go to bed at night and you can't go to sleep because that money fever is burning in your heart. And you're saying, I see it. I can do it. I can get it. And look how that's going to change my family. I can finally be free of these financial burdens and I can truly worship God. I can serve Him. All I want is to be able to have time to do the will of God and now this business is going to set me free. Oh, I'm sick of it. Money fever. Now, are any of these sins any worse than any other sin? They're all sin. Pride of the heart. Biting each other. Arguments. Malice. Bitterness. They're all sin. But when you get on the altar of burnt offering, it's all leveled down. It's all under the blood. We're now new creatures in Christ Jesus. Are we going to still make mistakes? Well, yes, but John tells us that we have an advocate with a father. And we're told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he doesn't just forgive us, he breaks the power of the sin over us. So that we can be on that altar of burnt offering and we can be given totally unto the Lord God of heaven. Then we're safe to devote ourselves to the fellowship. Because there's no pecking order in the fellowship. Before Pentecost, it was always who's going to be greatest. After they got on the altar of burnt offering, nobody asked who's going to be the greatest. Now it was how can I serve? How can I serve? They devoted themselves single-mindedly to the fellowship. I want to go down just a couple of verses, and I want to pick up what the scriptures say that looked like. Verse 44, all the believers were together. Can I say that again? All the believers were together. In other words, they didn't have separate lives. They had one life and it was in Christ. So Christ was not an amenity to their life. 
and the church was not an amenity to their life. It was their life. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody brought everything they had and piled it in the middle and and said, okay, this is all ours, it's in common. No, everybody still lived in their own houses. They didn't form a commune. They all lived in their same houses. The reason that was called common is because now nobody laid ownership to their stuff. And so when a brother or a sister was in desperate need, they said, I've got something that'll cover that. You're not going to stand alone. We're together in this. So everything was in common. Now, you can see immediately the problem with this. You've got some fellow that comes in and he says, hey, this is an easy ride. I don't have to work. And so Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. I mean, that's why he said it. Because in the body, there was such a rich sharing that some were now coming and trying to take advantage of that. You know the secret? On the altar of burnt offering, nobody tried to take advantage. But their heart was to reach out and help. In other words, if the Lord's heart is to bless us, the heart of God's people is to bless each other. That's what they were doing. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So the third picture we get of this body called the church is that they held communion together. They celebrated the Eucharist. They celebrated the, the blood and the, and the bread because eating the body of Jesus and drinking the blood of Jesus is what sustains a person who stays on the altar of burnt offering. That's where the strength flows from. As soon as you get off that altar and you go over here and start plucking fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you've lost it. You've been deceived by the devil. So now they're in this place where the fellowship extends now to the communion. But I want to tell you the communion here spoken of is much more than just the Lord's Supper. Suddenly, they couldn't stand being apart. Suddenly, the homes were opened, and people were going over to each other's houses. Now, this is very scary. I can tell you as a pastor what terrifies people. Many times is when I show up at their front door and just knock on the door. (laughs) And I do that quite often. Do you know why I do it? Because I'll know a lot more about their spiritual life after I've seen what's in their house. One of the marks of the New Covenant Church 
is that they've laid down their busy schedules. They've laid down the seeking after the world and they've opened their hearts to the body and they walk in fellowship with each other. Now there's a fourth witness of the New Testament body life. Let me read it for you. They devoted themselves in verse 42 to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they've devoted themselves to the scripture, to the teaching. So we have the scripture, we have fellowship, we have the breaking of bread, and we have prayer. Those are the marks of the New Testament church. And until those marks are evident in our lives, we are not on the altar of burnt offering. And Satan is going to do anything he can do to keep us from the unity of the Spirit. Now, let me digress for just a moment. In a cult, the pastor is the head of the church. And he speaks about these kinds of things in order to gain control over the hearts and minds of the congregation. But in the body of Christ, the pastor speaks about these things to connect you to the head of the church, who is not the pastor. It's Jesus. So be very clear. You're responsible not to Pastor Ray Greenlight. You're responsible to Jesus Christ. And he's the one who calls you to come and live in these four signs of the body of Christ. For some of you, the elder burnt offering is your job. That's where you sacrifice yourself. Or some of you, the altar of burnt offering is your need to be right, to control. Some of you, if circumstances go, don't go just the way you want, you are very difficult to live with because you want to be in control of every part of the circumstances of your life and your family's life, and if you could, the church's life. The Lord is saying, let go. Get on the altar, burn offering. Let the fire of God come on your life. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold.
I choose to be Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. God bless you. We love you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with great joy now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory Jesus Christ alone.